Welcome in. You are listening to the Blue Notes podcast. This is a presentation of Indianapolis Colts stories and notes. I'm your host, Benjamin Taylor. Well, Colts fans, that was perfect. Perfect. A very much needed win on Sunday night. I'm trying my best to avoid the Trumpian huge comment, but really, it was significant. Enormous. Humongous. It was great. Sunday night, the Colts traveled to San Francisco and beat the 49ers on their field in the midst of what is being called a bomb cyclone rainstorm. What is a bomb cyclone? I have no idea, but it sounds cool and ferocious, and it looked messy. On this episode, we will talk about the exceptional win in the Bay, revisit last week's unanswered question, and take a quick look ahead at the home matchup with the Tennessee Henrys. Stay with me. Folks, I have to be honest with you. I listened to last week's episode and I came away from it thinking, <laughs> what in the world was I talking about? I posed a pretty simple question and planned to offer an objective look at both sides of the coin. I asked, are the Colts any good this year? Then I fumbled along I sang a Sarah McLaughlin jam. I'm not kidding. If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to it, at least for your own jeering. All jeering is acceptable. But then I got sidetracked with injuries and all of that, and I never really answered the question. Not at all. So in my defense, it, it wasn't a great question, and it needs some clarity. What I meant was, what can we expect from the Colts? Are they improving? More importantly, are they a Super Bowl team? Let's be honest, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if you're a good team in October. Being good or not good in October doesn't answer whether this team is a Super Bowl contender. And that's what we want to know. Are the Colts Super Bowl contenders? Do they have a shot this year? I do think we can answer this question. And if you'll bear with me, I'm going to try again. I'll just go ahead and answer the question right now. I do think the Colts are in the mix for the Super Bowl. I really do. But of course, I have my concerns. Listen, I really try to be objective. I try to give it to you straight. The Twitter world tends to thrive in the darkness. The negativity there is a little too heavy for my liking. On the other hand, as much as I love them, sometimes Colts media can be a little too kind. Much like proud parents signing their golden boy up for the gifted class. I like their enthusiasm, but sometimes it reaches a peculiar and unhealthy degree, especially the voices within West 56th Street. I don't want to mention any names, but someone on Colts.com last year claimed that Philip Rivers, Philip Rivers was an MVP candidate. <laughs> Whoa, mama, we are not watching the same games, apparently. I want to be somewhere in the middle. I love this team. I'm a fan, unashamedly, but I also want to be objective as much as possible. And even though I do think the Colts can compete for a Super Bowl this year, I have my concerns. My number one concern for this team is actually the lack of statement wins. Sunday night was certainly a good one, but was it a statement? The best opportunity the Colts have had so far to flex on national television was the Ravens game, and they blew it. After embarrassing the Ravens for three straight quarters, the Colts collapsed and we all saw it. The tough opening weeks of the schedule provided some other opportunities to send 
and league notice, but those losses made a bit more sense. The opening defeat to the visiting Seahawks was calculable given the strange offseason for the Colts. Then they had a real chance to win against the Rams, one of the best teams in football, but Carson got hurt and the game was then thrown into the hands of a young quarterback who is no longer on the roster. Last season, the Colts had one memorable statement win and that was the home game against Green Bay. Actually, can I pause here? I'm gonna, I wanna tell a story about that, uh, a quick story about that game. I did not go to that game. Shout out to Patrick and Zach who were there and I desperately wanted to go, but given COVID and everything that was going on, I didn't, I didn't go to the game. I stayed home. They went, uh, made the trip from West Virginia to the game. And, um, but the sad part of the story is I was home and, and a friend brought dinner to, uh, remember it was a Thanksgiving week game. I don't think it was Thanksgiving day, but it was the weekend of Thanksgiving. And a friend had brought us food, which was nice. <laughs> but, but unfortunately her car wouldn't start and she was trying to leave and her car wouldn't start. And so not only did I not get to go to the game, but I actually spent part, part of that game outside in the rain trying to get her, her car to start. So uh, it's a sad story actually. But nevertheless, it was a statement game. I think the most memorable uh, mark of that season. And actually, if you go back to 2013, I know that was a long time ago, but the Colts beat three of the final four teams left in the playoffs that year, the Niners, Seahawks and Broncos. They were all regular season wins, but that's what you're looking for. We need to see this team beat playoff caliber teams. The Ravens matchup on Monday Night Football set the stage for the Colts to emerge onto that upper tier, but they fell short. And as much as I disagree with the national media, I cannot defend my case for this team given what we saw happen in that fourth quarter. That was hard evidence to show that the Colts simply weren't ready. Sunday night in San Francisco was a nice bounce back. Winning on the road in those conditions has to mean something. Another concern that sadly has no immediate solution is the secondary. And this concern is twofold, depth and performance. First of all, and I mentioned this last week, Julian Blackman's injury stings. It just hurts. He plays a position that was already thin. By the way, does anyone think it's a strange coincidence that two years in a row, the starting free safety tears his Achilles tendon? That's not a very cool trend. Nevertheless, Blackman was playing better than anyone in the secondary, and his loss creates a hole not likely to be filled by anyone on this roster. In San Francisco, Andrew Sandejo and George Odom split time at free safety. Well, not really. Sandejo outsnapped Odom 4-1, to one, but they both played. This past summer, George Odom took to Twitter to express his feelings about the amount of money he was being offered to play for the Colts. Well, now the special teamer might get a chance to show that he can play defense. I'll say this, I think that the bomb cyclone was actually a sweet gift from the Lord above. The Colts entered the Bay Area with a banged up and underperforming secondary against a quarterback who thankfully doesn't pose much of a threat in the passing game. Add the pouring rain and swirling winds and I think I could have played some safety in that game. Well, 
That's a terrible exaggeration. Yet I do think Blackman's loss wasn't truly felt in San Francisco, but will be consistently tested in the coming weeks. Aside from the injuries, this secondary hasn't performed all that well. Kenny Moore and Kari Willis, two players who we have known to be steady and reliable, have struggled mightily through the first few weeks of the season. I'm learning now that Willis has been dealing with an injury, so hopefully he continues to progress. The cornerbacks, though, are in equal trouble. The best of the bunch so far has been Rakia Sin, who missed Sunday's game because of an injury, but it looks like he'll be back this week. Like George Odom, Isaiah Rogers might get the chance to move from special teams to full-time defensive back. Rodgers made the diving interception against the Texans that he wished he completed in the playoff game last year at Buffalo. It was a nice grab nonetheless. Rodgers has certainly flashed, but the Colts' secondary still seems like a wounded unit in flux. The lack of pass rush could terminally disrupt any hope of a Colts' playoff run. There's no mystery here. We have discussed this weekly. Chris Ballard cut loose veteran pass rushers from last year's team with the hope of developing young talent. That was the plan, and I won't say it's not working, it's just not working quickly. I know everyone hates Matt Eberflus's defensive scheme, but I really don't. I'm fine with it. I really don't care how many yards the Colts give up if the end result is good. Yards don't win games. And that's just how this whole thing works. Keep everything in front, limit the big plays, stop the run, but cause turnovers. Punch the ball out, put pressure on the quarterback and force him to make bad throws. That's the Eberflus plan. I actually like this scheme because we have the right people for it. And as I mentioned, this scheme generally doesn't put cornerbacks and safeties on an island to guard star receivers one-on-one. -on -one. The Colts don't have the personnel to do that anyway. They have no way to get those kinds of players, so I feel like this is the best option. Yes, sometimes it backfires. <laughs> sometimes the stars align from every far-off galaxy and Gardner Minshew completes 95% of his passes and you lose to the terrible Jags. Yes, that happened. But Phillip Rivers also threw two bad interceptions in that game and the Colts lost the turnover battle 2-0 in a seven-point game. The Ravens game is another example when the scheme has looked a mess. Similar to the Jacksonville game, there was just not enough pressure on the quarterback to force him into making wrong decisions, and the inexperienced secondary wasn't much of a threat. I do not believe the scheme is the problem. The problem is that the scheme relies on a good pass rush to work, and currently, the Colts don't have that. Those are my concerns. How the Colts match up against good teams, the performance and injuries in the secondary, and the pass rush. It's a short list that could probably have a few more items on it if I'm honest, but we'll leave it at that for now. I think there are really great reasons for optimism, but we'll get to them shortly. I want to take a quick break from the Colts' season outlook to examine Sunday night's game in San Francisco. Ha! It was a great win. Great win. A must win. As I stated on last week's episode, at 2-4, and four, every game is a must-win, but it was. The Colts returned to Indy with a victory, and that's the most important thing. Some things that stood out to me, though, Sunday night. Well, number one, Jonathan Taylor's usage. 
Who knows what's going on in that backfield? Some fans are wondering why Marlon Mack is getting any carries at all. That's fair, but it was Naheem Hines who took over in the fourth quarter for some perplexing reason. In fact, when asked about the late switch to Hines, although Jonathan Taylor was having a productive game, Reich called it a coach's decision. JT got the first possession of the fourth quarter. Then, even with the lead in driving rain, Reich elected to pass the ball on six straight plays with a couple of quarterback scrambles mixed in. It was during this time that the Colts turned to Hines instead of Taylor. During the final two possessions for the Colts, Hines had five carries for a whopping seven yards. That's 1.4 yards per carry. Watching it unfold Sunday was a head-scratcher, but I have a theory. JT was listed on the injury report this week with a rib injury that was likely sustained sometime during the game. Maybe that was the reason for the switch at the end. Also, Frank Reich was clearly deciding to be aggressive and wanting to put the game away, which called for more pass plays. Let's hope the turn to Hines was for the above reasons and not a sign of Reich's lack of faith in Jonathan Taylor to finish the game after an early fumble. Sunday night, Frank Reich's play calling was exceptional. He was admittedly more aggressive, remembering what happened in Baltimore. Reich told the team that he wouldn't do that again, meaning he wouldn't call a run on third and eight to kill the clock with the lead. Again, I didn't see any problem with the call in Baltimore, but Sunday's game against the Niners did seem more like Reich's brand of football. The deep passing attempts exposed a San Francisco secondary that was somehow in worse shape than the Colts. The Niners have committed more pass interference penalties than any team in the league, and the bomb cyclone didn't stop Frank Reich from punching in that cheat code. Michael Pittman Jr. was especially successful in producing interference penalties, a true sign of surrender by the defensive back. On one occasion, Chris Collinsworth said that the defender's attempt wrapped Michael Pittman Jr. like a like a hug from Grandma on Thanksgiving. True to his word, Frank Reich sealed the victory with a 28-yard pass play to Pittman with under three minutes left in the game. Two plays before that, I was out of my mind. It was Baltimore all over again. The Colts had a comfortable lead with the clock expiring. Instead of ensuring its movement, Wentz halted the clock with incomplete passes. But the completion on third down to MPJ crushed any lasting hope for the Niners and illustrated some kind of play-calling evolution for Frank Reich. The iconic touchdown for MPJ could be for this season what Blankenship's field goal could have been against Baltimore, but failed to deliver. It was a different approach for the Colts in San Francisco, and it paid off. My final takeaway from the Cyclone Bomb in the Bay is that Michael Pittman Jr. is a star in the making. Zach Kiefer called the 28-yard touchdown the best play of Pittman's career so far. Whether he was catching long passes downfield or getting Thanksgiving hugs from Grandma, MPJ presented a problem for which the Niners had no answer. He is what the Colts have been searching for. His athleticism and hands, in my opinion, are underrated, but his aggressive mentality is what separates the player. 
the 2020 picks that paired Pittman with Jonathan Taylor might eventually overshadow the historic 2018 draft in which Ballard selected the two All-Pros in Darius Leonard and Quentin Nelson. Back to our question. We have discussed concerns. We paused to recap Sunday's game in San Francisco. Now, I'm going to build a case. I'm going to build a case for the Colts' Super Bowl chances this year. I think there are real tangible reasons for optimism. And the first one is the O-line. What a journey it's been. <laughs> they, they were ranked in the top five unit last year. Then Anthony Costanza retired. Nelson broke his foot. Something happened to Braden Smith. Then there was a Sam Tevy experience. Then a Julian Davenport project. And out of all of that, Chris Reed and Matt Pryor emerged. Reed has been so good at left guard that he has moved over to the right side and is now stealing snaps from Mark Lewinsky, the stalemate starter who had not missed a snap since 2018. This is big news. Eric Fisher, the new left tackle, is still struggling, working his way back from the Achilles tear, but with Reed and Pryor, the unit has crystallized and improved over the last seven weeks, as we all hope they would. Adding Quentin Nelson and Braden Smith, who should play within the next week or so, will skyrocket this unit. The starters will be in place, leaving behind a couple well-established rotational players. A dream come true for Chris Ballard, Jonathan Taylor, Carson Wentz, and me. <laughs> My next point of optimism is going to sound like that clever move that you do in a job interview where you take a weakness and turn it into a strength. The wise boss, Michael Scott, once said that his weaknesses were that he worked too hard and cared too much. <laughs> it's kind of like that for the Colts' defensive line. The lack of pressure is a concern now, but I think it improves over the course of the season. I mean, it has to, right? Quiddy Pay is getting healthier and catching up to the speed of the game. Taekwon Lewis is getting comfortable in his new role and quietly having his best season. Dio Dangbo will play at some point, and goodness, that is a large man. Adding a player of that size can't hurt. Ben Banigou remains the mystery man. The preseason all-star vanished. He logged exactly zero snaps Sunday in San Francisco. Teray has played well, but continues to struggle with injuries. He's out of the lineup every couple of games. Given the youth and inexperience of this group, I certainly won't say that the defensive line will be a strength in 2021, but I do expect them to improve. They have to. The strange number in this equation is 16. That's how many turnovers the Colts' defense has caused so far, which is unfathomable given the lack of pressure levied on opposing quarterbacks. The question is whether they can sustain this pace and ultimately reach their lofty goal of 40 takeaways on the season without consistent pass rush. Well, I think they have a chance. With all of its faults, this Eberflus defense does one thing exceptionally well. It causes turnovers. And the Colts right now are doing it with very little help from the defensive line. And if they are able to improve their edge pressure throughout the season, turnovers will keep coming. And lastly, Carson Wentz. He is my final reason for optimism and the most likely vehicle that this team cruises on to some kind of late playoff run. It was not the smoothest transition, but we shouldn't expect that. Goodness, this fan base especially knows what it's like to bring on a new quarterback. 
We haven't returned the same starter since 2016. There was sound criticism over trading for Carson Wentz in the offseason instead of drafting a rookie quarterback, and it was fair, but there isn't one rookie quarterback that is playing as well as Wentz is right now. Mac Jones has been the best of the bunch. I have to think Trevor Lawrence works out, but I have no confidence that another rookie keeps his job long. The average PFF score for 2021 rookie quarterbacks right now is 60.4, which again is boosted by Mac Jones, while Carson Wentz is hovering in the mid-70s. And it's not just rookie quarterbacks. Transitioning to any new quarterback was going to take some time. There are 11 teams whose starting quarterback wasn't on the roster last year. The combined record for those teams, 26 and 49. And that includes the 6-1 Rams. The Rams are the only team to bring on a new quarterback this year and have a winning record through seven weeks. This was going to take some time, no matter which path Ballard and Reich selected. Now, with Wentz, they have a shot sooner than later. Much like Andrew Luck in 2018, Carson is recreating himself with each snap here in 2021. This is the Broadway show dramatized before us to the design and script of Frank Reich, the arc that brings an unlikely character to the forefront after heroically fighting through innumerable obstacles. Wentz was phenomenal for three quarters in Baltimore, and more of the same was shown in San Francisco. Little by little, I expect Carson to assume the role as the established leader of this team. Are the Colts Super Bowl contenders in 2021? Yeah, I think they have a chance. If you expected them to be undefeated, then you're probably pretty sad right now, but we had no reason to expect that. The Colts are 3-4 and four with a stretch of very winnable games approaching. They had a rough start, but they're improving. They don't need to be undefeated to win a Super Bowl. They just need a chance. Tampa Bay won only 11 games last year before going on their run to win the championship, and now they look unstoppable. The Super Bowl run starts now, though. There's no more significant matchup on the schedule than this Sunday's game against the division rival Tennessee Titans. The Colts have to win it, and I think they will. 29-23. Happy Halloween, Colts fans. Enjoy the game. Come back next week and we'll talk about it. Colts forever. This was a presentation of the Blue Notes Podcast. I'm Benjamin Taylor. Thank you for listening.